ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Dementia is the second leading cause of death in Australia. It impacts thousands of individuals every year. This year alone, it's thought that over 420,000 Australians are living with various forms of dementia. More than 1.6 million individuals in the country are engaged in the care of someone with dementia. It's widespread. It affects many people, directly or indirectly. Alzheimer's is the most common form of the disease, but uh, fortunately, ongoing research in Australia is uncovering ways to detect and treat dementia. And guess what? There are there are scientific advances here, and there is possibly a blood test on the way. We'll talk some more about that in this hour. Uh, a recent study in the UK has also made headlines revealing that men taking drugs for erectile dysfunction, like Viagra, are... <laughs> Uh, completely out of the blue, may reduce their risk of Alzheimer's disease. Why is that? We'll talk some more about that too. So we'll look over the next hour. We'll explore the prominence of dementia and delve into our experiences of living with and caring for someone with uh, Alzheimer's and address any questions you might have about this disease. Joining us tonight is uh, Dr. Helena Popovich, a leading world expert in improving brain function and author of Can Adventure Prevent Dementia?, Dr. Popovich cared for her father, diagnosed with Alzheimer's and mixed vascular dementia for 10 years. Helena, good evening to you. Welcome to Nightlife. Thank you. Good evening, Philip. Great to have you with us too. We're also joined tonight by Dr. By, uh, Caroline Cranwell. Caroline's had 18 years of experience as a self-taught Alzheimer's caregiver, and she's the author of two excellent uh, manuals, Navigating Alzheimer's and also Hardcore Resilience. Um, Caroline, good evening to you and uh, welcome to the program. Uh, good evening, Philip. It's a pleasure to be here it's, and thank you for inviting me. Well, it's terrific to have you with us. Can we start with you, Helena? What is the difference between dementia and Alzheimer's anyway? Dementia is an umbrella term that covers about 100 different disorders of the brain, all of which lead to progressive decline in cognitive functioning. And the area of the brain affected influences the symptoms that you'll get so it's just an umbrella term it's just an umbrella term for all the forms of dementia that's right all the different forms of brain disease affecting cognition it's a bit like the word cancer you know well what type of cancer so the logical next question is what type of dementia does a person have as you said the most common type is alzheimer's disease it accounts for about 70 percent of cases and that's why it's often used interchangeably with the word dementia Mm. but it's certainly not the only type so I've had it put to me by, by some people who say, oh, they've got Alzheimer's as though that's the worst kind of dementia. Is that true? Oh, I don't think you could. I don't think you could. You can compare them in that particular way. They mm. all have different symptoms. They're all extremely challenging and extremely difficult. I would actually argue that it's not the worst, and that's because we have the most evidence in how we can prevent it and I do mean prevent, not in 100% of cases. And, I might, and I'm just going to add, in Carolyn's case, her husband had a different type of Alzheimer's, which was genetically determined. If he had it young, then he had a specific deterministic gene, and that's not what I'm talking about. That accounts for maybe 5 to 10% of all cases of Alzheimer's. But if you've got a late, an, an Alzheimer's that starts after the age of 65, then throughout our life, there are dozens and dozens of things we can do to protect our brain from decline. Yep. I'd like to get to that in a moment too, but I, I mm-hmm. also I just want to talk about what it is for just for a second too, because I think yeah. a lot of people get 
I think, are confused by it and also worry about it. Uh, particularly they worry about things like, as we get older, we my memory doesn't seem to be as good as it was. Now, I, as far as I understand, that's not a surefire thing that you're getting dementia, is it? Absolutely not. And I, I'm, I'm going to um, say something out of left field here. Hmm. Memory does not necessarily decline with age. It is very, very much determined by the culture we live in and our beliefs about ageing. There is just study after study now showing that if you have negative beliefs about ageing, if you associate ageing with frailty, weakness, rather than freedom and wisdom, you are far more likely to decline physically and mentally than somebody who thinks, you know, ageing is a good thing. You know, I'm finally free to do what I want, travel the world, you know, be more social. They've done great studies on comparing, and you know, your standard American mm-hmm. person, people from deaf communities and people from mainland China. Now, the interesting thing is people in deaf communities and people in China revere the elderly. They don't have negative stereotypes related to ageing where they believe your memory declines. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, when you test young people, whether they're deaf, Chinese or American, they all all score pretty much the same in memory tests. But when you test the elderly, deaf people and Chinese people have far better memories than your average American older person. And it's related to their cultural beliefs. So the first thing is let's not talk ourselves into declining as we age. That's the first thing. The second thing is um, it's not the important thing to look out for is changes in a person. So, yes, it could be um, their memory gets weaker. This is now signs of Alzheimer's, symptoms and signs of Alzheimer's. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They get much more easily confused, especially about dates, days and times. They become more gullible. They get their facts mixed up. Um, They find it harder to follow instructions. They become apathetic. They lose interest in things that they they previously enjoyed. They start to struggle to make decisions or plans. Their attention span reduces. Their judgment reduces. They may have personality changes, mood swings, make inappropriate remarks become withdrawn. Now, they're just some of the things you might notice. Now, if somebody's always been withdrawn and always made inappropriate remarks, Hmm. obviously that's nothing to worry about. It's the changes that you notice in yourself or that others notice in you that's going to send warning signals. Yeah, I've often heard it said, that's right. In fact, I was talking to someone in the last week or so who said the first symptom that I noticed was that he, it's as though his personality changed. Hmm. He became a quite different person. Yes, that's very common. Over a relatively short period of time, and that was the thing. Yeah, yeah. Two other things just to look out for. um, Changes in sense of Mm humour. We underestimate how cognitively intact you have to be to grasp, you know, double meanings. You've got to have lateral thinking. You can't take things literally. So so, they've actually found that changes in sense of humour can occur nine years before any other symptoms. And changes in driving patterns can also occur 10, 15 years before you get any other symptoms. So, but, but this is measured very, very, very in subtle ways. Hmm. You know, they, they put specific machines in people's cars. So it's not something you're going to notice. If their driving gets really bad, then everybody will notice. But this is like they just take a little bit longer to brake. They drive a little bit slower. Um, 
they notice things, it, it takes them longer to react. They tend to drive to the same place the same way. They don't like to try new routes. They don't like to drive at night. Little changes like that can also maybe a sign. Mm. Caroline, with your husband's diagnosis in his 50s, how did you first notice something was wrong? It was just little subtle things, Philip. Mm. Um, just like um, Dr Popovic said, it was little bits of forgetfulness and... Um, Confu- a little bit of confusion, uh, asking me the same questions repeatedly, like uh, where are we going on the weekend, um, who are we meeting, um, what time do we have to be there, what do I have to wear? And then a few minutes later, he'd come back with exactly the same questions. Mm. But because he was young, and in our case, there was no, in Richard's case rather, there was no family history of um, Alzheimer's or any form of dementia. He was fit, healthy, um, good weight, uh, non-drug taker, non-smoker. There was no indication whatsoever. So it was very easy um, to mm. think, oh, that's stress, you've been working too hard, you need a holiday. And it was very easy to sort of explain those little symptoms away. It was during a trip to Europe that you realised something wasn't quite right, wasn't it? Uh, that was, we had a few signs before then, which mm. is when I thought, right, let's go on a holiday and have a complete break, have a complete change. And we were meeting some friends in London and we got there a couple of days in advance. And um, first thing we did was drop our bags off. We got on the hop-on, hop-off bus. And Richard had lived in London for a couple of years in his early 20s, so he knew it quite well. And we'd planned this trip for ages and he told me all about the places he was going to show me and everything. But when we were on the bus, he didn't want to get off. So I said, oh, okay, we'll do another loop. And so we did. So we did two loops of the Mm. red line and then we swapped to the blue line, did that. And then our ticket included a um, trip down the Thames and the London Eye. And I said, oh, let's, let's do that now. And he said, no. He said, I need more time. And I'm thinking, well, we're only here for two days. Um, our friends are arriving tonight. And I said, well, how, how much time would you need? And he said, oh, if I had a week, I think I could do it. So that really sent the alarm bells ringing with me. You're thinking, hang on, hang on, we're just on, but, a, bu- we're on a bus. And yep, what's he yep. saying? And yeah. he knew all these places. And when we went round... Um, the first few times and we went past, came along Regent Street and we went past the Cafe Royal. Mm. He got all sort of animated and excited and all the rest of it. And I thought, what's going on? Um, Because I worked out afterwards, the Cafe Royal was the only place that he recognised because he had worked there. And so everything else was just a blur. But Mm. because that was familiar, that was the one thing that was familiar that day. So the next day um, I just decided we'd just have a quiet day and just go for lunch in a cafe and then he sort of was almost back to his normal self. Mm. Then we caught the um, plane to um, Portugal and, um, oh sorry, we went to Ireland and um, in Ireland it didn't sort of have the, you know, it was quieter. We didn't have sort of the push-pull effect that you get in London um, and we were staying a couple of hours out of Galway. So, you know, green rolling hills and sheep and, you know, the sort of 
the world that he existed in was more, you know, more akin to his comfort level. Mm. And sort of I realised that London was not the place for him anymore. Oh, well, um, Carolyn Crammell is with us, um, a carer uh, of, of uh, Alzheimer's sufferers, and Dr Helena Popovich is with us as well, leading world expert, expert in improving brain function, function and so on. Uh, um, Helena, what, is there... Is there any reliable way at the moment for t- to test for Alzheimer's or dementia? And can you tell us about research in this area? Because I understand there's a blood test that may be on the way. There's been a blood test on the way for decades. Yeah. And there are loads of blood tests that have been used in research for research purposes. There, it's a very complicated process to diagnose mm-hmm. because firstly you, you want to rule... So you want to... If somebody comes in and... They have concerns. Firstly, you you will do a mental test, but they're pretty blunt. You can refer them for um, extensive neuropsychological testing with a neuropsychologist that will ascertain cognitive deficits, deficits, but you still won't know what's causing them. Mm -hmm. You will need to rule out all other brain diseases, things like stroke, a tumour, hydrocephalus, an underactive thyroid, so hypothyroidism, even depression, uh, vitamin B12 deficiencies, side effects of medications, obstructive sleep apnea. In an elderly person, even urinary tract infection can look like you know, Alzheimer's or memory problems or confusion. So you've got to rule out all these things. So you're looking at blood tests for a lot of those, brain scans for a lot of those, maybe even cerebrospinal fluid tests what you're talking about in terms of blood tests coming on Mm. are what we call biomarkers and probably the one that's that's going to be coming up the most likely one that that we're going to have soon is called neurofilament light nfl and this is a protein found in the long tails of brain cells and Mm -hmm. And if there are high levels of NFL in your plasma, it means that there's damage to the blood to the brain cell. And we do get increasing amounts of NFL in our plasma as we age, but if it's higher than expected for your age, that will set off alarm bells. Now, the problem with it is it's not only found in Alzheimer's, but also in other dementias like frontotemporal, in Huntington's disease, in multiple sclerosis and motor neuron disease. But you could probably differentiate between those just looking at the symptoms. So the reason people are hesitating using it is it's not 100% specific for Alzheimer's. But it will differentiate um, Alzheimer's from something like depression or other psychiatric disorders. See, I think a lot of people would like to say, look, you know, I mean, can I go in and in the space of a week get a diagnosis that I either have or don't have dementia? Probably, okay, the most definitive thing would be to go in and have what's known as, as, as an FDG PET scan. Mm-hmm. stands for fluorodeoxyglucose, positron emission tomography. And that's simply they inject radioactive glucose mm-hmm. and they see where it's being used by your brain. And if it's not, you can see where the brain is not using glucose. And that is a hallmark of Alzheimer's disease. Right. Okay. Uh, that, that's only in late 2021. Uh, Medicare rebate was introduced. I think it's about $700. You have to have a clinical evaluation by a specialist 
or by a GP in consultation with a specialist. Mm. And it, it detects what we call glucose hypometabolism. Let's get to some calls and questions. Um, Linda on the line from Miller Miller. G'day, Linda. Hello. Hello, Philip. Yeah, hello, Doctor. Hi. Hello. Um, yeah, um, Dad passed away from Alzheimer's when he was 72, and when he was a young child, he had mercury um, poisoning. I'm um, just had nearly died then. I'm just wondering, is there a link, and where does that leave um, us as children? Toxins can definitely affect the brain. Mm. Lead poisoning, mercury poisoning, uh, moulds. If you live in a very mouldy house, some people can be very sensitive to that and that can affect cognition. Air pollution is a known risk factor if you live in a highly polluted area. So the short answer is yes, toxins, heavy metals can certainly affect the brain and reduce cognition. Mm. Where, now, here's the thing, though. Do they cause dementia, though? Yes, they can. Right. They can. In the same way that alcohol is a toxin to the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, cigarette smoking is a toxin to the brain. Um, pesticides, if you have high enough doses, can affect cognition. But here's the thing. We can also do things to buffer our risk. So, for instance, if you have a very strong social network, if you have really good supportive relationships throughout your life, if you regularly exercise, you know, regular physical exercise, including strength training, balance training, if you engage in lifelong active learning, if you have a very strong sense of meaning and purpose, if you have a really positive attitude towards ageing, those things may buffer or mitigate the Mm. effects of a toxin. Okay. So it's never going to be, it's very rarely one cause. It's usually you've got type 2 diabetes plus you smoke, plus you have visceral obesity, plus you have a highly stressful job. That's a recipe for Alzheimer's. Okay, one three hundred eight hundred triple two is my number. We're talking with our experts about it. If you've got questions, um, give us a call. Dan from the Northern Beaches. G'day, Dan. Yes, g'day, doctors. Thanks for your um, show. I'm just interested, I'm actually driving back from missing out my mum's literally in days of, uh, of uh, frontal parietal dementia. Right. And I'm just mm-hmm. interested in terms of her personality, the question being her personality was always fairly forthright, suffered falls fairly lightly, but still an extremely loving, caring person. And the frontal parietal dementia made her more aggressive to the, to the clients and also the staff, which was not her character at all. Um, picture a North Shore woman who was very humble and did a lot of good charitable works and suddenly she's got this dementia that's changed her. How much more do you see the person gets an accentuation of that slight personality trait that she had, that slight a doer, I guess, and, and mm. slightly, could, or, or do they tend to be, um, is, they can go the other way, where there's someone who's a, quite a forthright person, like the mum could become extremely passive. What, what does, it, does it generally accentuate it or go the other direction? I could go both ways. More often, it'll get worse. The the characteristics will be heightened. So if, if there's a little bit of forthrightness, more likely to get more in that direction. But it could go. It can go either way. Interesting. Mm. Okay. Okay, Dan. Thank you. Thank you, mate. Thank you. Um, I appreciate you giving us a call too. Uh, Fee from Newport on the text line. Hello, Philip and Dr. Popovich. Is there a relationship between the herpes virus and dementia? Helena. 
Yes, there have been a lot of studies implicating various viruses, mm-hmm. herpes simplex virus being one. And an interesting so, – so the answer is yes, there is strong suspicion that it can increase your risk. However, like 80% of us have had cold sores, yeah. but not 80% of us are going to get dementia. So, so try and minimise all the things that will reactivate a herpes simplex infection because the herpes – remains dormant. So avoid stress, avoid sunburn. Um, The other thing that's been found really interestingly, if you have the shingles vaccine, it tends to reduce your risk, not because of its effect on shingles, but because it also seems to to dull down the effect of the herpes simplex virus. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah, we've talked talked before. Another infection that's really important to look after is gingivitis because the bacteria causing gum disease called Porphyromonas gingivalis, that can travel to the brain very easily because of close proximity um, and deposit toxins called ginger pains in your brain, which significantly increase the risk of Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. But also if you've got um, gum disease, you've got tend to have chronic inflammation and that inflammation extends up to the brain and also can lead to Alzheimer's. Mm. Okay, Dr. Helena Popovich is with us. Carolyn Cramble's with us as well. We're talking about dementia and how you how you deal with it, and also particularly how you care care for people as well. Look, doing something about it. Okay, that's what it, that's what it is. Uh, there is a, there are tests for it. We've established that, so you you can you can get tested and you can get an, an answer in that sense. I think a lot of people get very gloomy at that point, don't they, and think, well, oh dear, that's the end of me. Well, it may be in the sense that there's an end of it for all of us. But the idea that you can do nothing is not correct, is it, uh, Helena and Carolyn? Carolyn, well, may, Carolyn I, maybe you want to go first here. I think um, what Richard would have said and what I agree with is that, you know, live, live your life, live every day to its mm. fullest mm. and keep a positive attitude. And I think right from the beginning you need to make a decision. Am I going to be a victim here or a survivor? And now, obviously, we knew what the outcome was going to be for Richard, but I had to think of myself as a survivor for the family and for him. I couldn't look after him if I slipped into that victim mentality. So I think a positive outlook is really, really important and something to realise that, yes, there are choices and you do have options right in the beginning Mm. when you get that diagnosis. Mm. Tell me about those options. Well, the options of um, sort of doing nothing. A lot of people, it's quite common, so I've been told, um, they tend to think, oh, well, I'll have to give up work straight away. Um, I'll have to give up driving straight away, when in fact there's actually a special test that you can have for someone with in the early stages of dementia. And Richard undertook that test and he was able to drive for about another 18 months and um, and he did really well on the test. Mm. Um, later, uh, not so well. And that was hard for him to accept. But, you know, we still he was still with us and we were still able to live as a family together. Mm. So I think it's concentrating, focusing on what you do have, not not what you're losing, sure. but what you still have. Helena, that's that's true. I mean, there's no cure for it. I mean, you can't, at, the, at the moment, we do not have a cure for it. We can't reverse it, uh, but we can ameliorate it. Is that is that a fair statement of where we're at? There have been some people who have reversed their Alzheimer's, 
But let me first say I 100% agree with what Carolyn has said. Focus on what is strong, not wrong. Mm. Keep engaging in all those things that continue to bring you joy, meaning and purpose. Really important to maintain socialising and just, as you say, getting the most out of every day. So that's first and foremost. Give your brain a reason to stay sharp and it more likely will. We have found that one of the worst things that we can do for our brain is consume excessive amounts of sugar. The worst thing we can do is consume excessive amounts of sugar. Mm -hmm. Think of this. Every soft drink is a bullet to our brain. There is no safe level of soft drink consumption, just like there is no safe level of um, uh, smoke, uh, cigarette consumption. Mm -hmm. Okay, There's no safe level, safe level of smoking. There's no safe level of soft drink consumption and sugar. It's not just soft drinks, it's all the sugary beverages. That includes fruit juices. Now, people are going to throw up their arms in there and say, but, you know, I love my smoothies. Let me explain the biochemistry very, very briefly. Sugar is, is a molecule called sucrose made up of fructose and glucose. Now, the fructose molecule, which, yes, is found in all natural fruits, I'm not talking about whole real food because when sugar is packaged in real food, it comes with water, fiber, and vitamin C, all of which mitigate its potential harms. So if it comes in real food, you don't have to worry about it. But the minute you mess with sugar and take it out of its source, then it becomes toxic because the fructose molecule can actually damage genes in our brain, it affects communication between brain cells. It leads to the buildup of toxic byproducts like uric acid in our brain cells. It increases inflammation and it actually depletes our brain cells of energy. And that is the hallmark of Alzheimer's disease. So eating sugar, as in packaged foods added to cakes, biscuits, pastries. Are you, ruling out, chocolate? Are you ruling out chocolate as well, Helena? The doses in the poison, and I, I, will, I will talk about chocolate separately because, <laughs> because cacao does have potentially uh, good properties in terms of dilating our blood vessels, getting um, lowering blood pressure, polyphenols. So there are some good things about chocolate, but it has to be a specific type of chocolate. So I'll get okay. onto that in a moment. But anything with added sugar is going to be toxic to our brain. And, you know, when they give rats sugar, they perform worse in tests of memory. They perform as though they were drunk. Now, the problem, people go, well, what about the glucose half of the molecule, which is your rice and your pasta and bread? Hmm. Unfortunately, excessive amounts of glucose can be converted to fructose. And, this, and the enzyme that does that is enhanced by salt and alcohol and dehydration. So if you combine sort of hot chips, which are glucose, with a lot of salt and wash it down with a beer, that is a recipe for Alzheimer's disease. Okay. All right. Okay. one three one three hundred eight hundred triple two. I know people are going to hate me after this. They part. are. They are. I can, that's right. I'm already having to put you in secure, into, into security <laughs> protection here. Um, Ahmed's on the line from Lakemba. G'day, Ahmed. Hi. Thanks for the call. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Um, my grandmother was diagnosed with dementia um, many, many years ago, um, and we suspect it was due to 
uh, decades of dealing with severe OCD. She had severe stress from the performing compulsions, the obsessions, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and um, it's gone to a point we suspect it's Alzheimer's now. However, my mother as well has OCD. It's not as severe because she dealt with it through therapy, but the symptoms didn't fully go away. And we're already starting to see many, many symptoms of dementia. She keeps mentioning how she's forgetting so many things, and it's really starting to upset a lot of us in the family. It's causing a lot of stress within the family, realizing what are we going to do because we've seen what happened to my grandmother, and she's still alive, but we don't want my mum to reach to get to that state as well. We're quite, very concerned. I mean, we don't want to upset her, but what are, what, are, what are practical steps to kind of tell her, look, we need to do something about your severe memory loss that's happening recently, you know, the, the constant memory loss that's there, and it's getting worse. Uh, what, what would you advise? To what extent is she aware of her own condition? She She's aware loss. because she mentions continuously, oh, I keep forgetting, oh, it's not me anymore, man. I'm forgetting so much. Oh, I forgot, I'm so sorry. Oh, I forgot that date. Like, we've never seen her forget so much. So she's mm. starting, she's she's somewhat self-aware. In fact, she's quite self-aware that she's forgetting, but I'm, I don't think she knows how bad it's become mm -hmm. because it's only okay. worsening. The, the first thing I would do is, remember, the most important thing is maintaining a good relationship with her. That's number one. Number two, reduce stress from her life as much as conceivably possible. So, you know, try not to stress her out. Try not to argue. You know, try, try and bring her as much joy as you possibly can. Now, here's the thing. Extending from my um, rant about sugar just then, we have actually found that there is a specific therapy called neuroketotherapeutics, largely going on what's known as a ketogenic diet, it can actually allow brain cells to heal. And this has been the mainstay of the people who have reversed their Alzheimer's. It's not a walk in the park. Look up, it entails severely restricting carbohydrate intake, you know, removing all sugar and ultra-processed and fast foods from your diet, increasing the fat intake, and moderating your protein. So very low carb, high fat, moderate protein. Sorry, diet. what was that, Ahmed? Is that similar to the carnival diet, which many people have claimed that they've healed a lot of the neurological diseases through, or is that similar to... That's the, an extreme form of the ketogenic diet. You don't have to go carnival. You can, um, you can do a vegan if you really wanted. It's harder. As long as you're eating real whole food, it doesn't matter if the food is from the land, from the sea, from the sky, or from um, a tree. But if it comes, you know... If it comes in a package, if it comes in a tin, if it comes in the box, I'd throw it in the bin. Eat mm. real whole food. So number one, get rid of all processed food. Get rid of all fizzy drinks, apart from natural mineral water and fruit juices, and, and cut down on her carbs. So no pasta, no rice, no potatoes. Um, you look up ketogenic diet there are so many yeah. uh, charliefoundation.org is one of the best it's ones not, it's not without controversy the keto diet though is it helena <laughs> we've discussed it's only on controversial the by people who haven't looked into the science there is hmm. just so much evidence now you can reverse type 2 diabetes within days you can i can get patients off insulin in 48 hours by putting them on a ketogenic diet mm -hmm. okay Armin. so yeah Thank you, Ahmed. Thank you. One three hundred eight hundred triple two. Carolyn, as, from your experience of, of caring, etc., how important is diet is from your vantage point? Um, well, obviously, we uh, tried to have as healthy a diet as we could, but mm. Richard, we always had a fairly healthy diet before. 
Mm. Um, he started having problems, so we sort of continued with that. We didn't. We never drank soft drinks. A um, little bit of alcohol, a little bit of dark chocolate. Uh, um, but um, oh, and he did like a little bit of ice cream occasionally. Mm. Um, but so we just sort of kept going with that diet. We didn't have an extreme diet, but I thought it was a fairly well balanced diet. Lots of vegetables and some fruit and protein. Mm. Mm. See, Richard's case was not a lifestyle based disease. Richard's case was a genetic disease. If you get it under, under the age of 65, then he's. It's because he has a specific gene, mm. and that oh. is a different ball game. I'm not. I mean, obviously, living health, a healthy, you know, a healthy lifestyle, getting regular exercise, not eating junk, will have helped Richard. Mm. Yeah. Um, can I just say something here? Yeah, yes, Sorry, yes I was, jump in, Caroline. Yeah. I was advised that he didn't have the genetic type oh, of really? Alzheimer's. Yes, okay. by a specialist, um, and um, they were unable to determine what the cause was. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, Helena, there is some yeah. association genetically with the disease, isn't there? If you're, you know, if one of, if a, if one of your parents had it, it's not, that, it's not that you will get it, but there is some association here, isn't there? There are two types of genes related to Alzheimer's. You've got deterministic genes. In other words, one of your parents has given you the gene and that is, at this point... It's unavoidable. You're going to get Alzheimer's mm. if you have one of these genes. But they're very rare. As I said, maybe 5% of people with Alzheimer's. It's much the most common gene so far discovered associated with Alzheimer's. And let me just say, we've discovered 70, about 70 different genes. Some increase your, your, your risk, some decrease your risk. But the one that is the most common is a specific form of a gene called ApoE. And you can get APOE2, APOE3, APOE4. There are three of these genes. If you have APOE3, and remember you get one from each, so you're going to have, you're either going to be a 3-3, a 3-4, a 2-3, you get the picture. If you have two threes, you're very run-of-the-mill. You don't have an increased risk. You don't have a decreased risk. You're just average. If you have a 2 you have less risk of Alzheimer's than the average person. And if you have a four, APOE4, you have an increased risk. Now, if you have one copy of four, you are two to three times increased risk. And if you have two copies of four, which Chris Hemsworth has, and he's been public about it, you 10 times increase your risk of getting Alzheimer's. However, it's not a deterministic gene. It's only a risk increase gene. And I hope Chris Hemsworth is listening. If I were his doctor, I would say, right, we are putting you on a ketogenic diet. We are making sure you get plenty of omega-3 fatty acids, plenty of physical exercise, and people with the APOE4 gene that have a positive attitude towards ageing actually nullify their risk. Physical exercise, like regular physical exercise and strength training, and I do want to get into strength training, and a positive attitude towards ageing, reduce a person's risk who has the double gene back to baseline. Okay. So you don't have an increased risk. All right. one three hundred eight hundred triple two is the number. Dr. Helena Popovich is with us. Also, Carolyn Cranwell, a, a, a carer for uh, Alzheimer's patients who's uh, written some extremely helpful manuals as well. Just back on caring for a second, Caroline, to to stay with us on on this. Resilience is terribly important. You've written a book about it. 
what resilience tips do you offer for those caring for someone with Alzheimer's? Well, I'd like to start with the fact that the notion, this notion that we've heard a lot about during um, COVID, mm. this notion of bouncing back, mm. is is just a, a waste of time. It, it's a false and misleading notion. So we need to get to the point where we accept what has happened. And I developed a concept to simplify resilience for people. It's a seven-step resilience ladder. And the first step is acceptance. And a lot of people say to me, but, oh, but I don't want to accept this. Mm. And, and I explain to them, well, that doesn't mean that you have to like it. But this is all about facing your reality because if you don't actually accept what has happened, you're stuck. Mm. You, you can't move forward. And then you can only spiral downwards. So I would say try and accept. And for us in our situation, and keep in mind, um, Richard was diagnosed in 2003, um, so that the brain scans, and I was there for all of the tests, and that was very helpful, seeing all of those tests. And when I actually saw his brain scan and I looked at it and I thought, oh, it it just looked like, if you can picture um, your street directory or your GPS map, uh, but there are little signs saying um, bridge out or slow down, roadworks or detour and and there were all these sort of little blockages and things. And I thought, oh, now I understand how the information is he's, it's struggling to get inside and how he's struggling to get his response out. And once I thought, once I had that image in my head, it was a lot easier to be, have more patience and to be more supportive. So that's just one little tip that I would give to people. And also I'd like to go back to what I was talking about earlier about having choices, mm -hmm. it's really important. A lot of people, and I've even read books written on this, and they start with, why me? Why us? Why our family? And really, that's just a waste of time. And to me, that tells me, oh, this person has not accepted the situation at this stage. So I think it's really, really important to go, no, this has happened. Some things in life just happen. And in our situation, as I said, Richard had all the tests, specialist advice, everything, and no family history whatsoever, no obesity, drinking, drugs, none of those problems. Six foot tall um, and, you know, very good weight and um, a very social, um, enjoyed his work, business, happy family life, positive outlook, all of those things. And so maybe that's what um, Dr. Um, Helena was talking about in that there was some positive um, support mm. there as well. Um, so I would also say to carers, don't be embarrassed to ask for help. That was something that I wasn't very good at. I just thought I had to be able to do this all myself, look after Richard, keep going to work, look after the children, run the house, you know, still keep in touch with my mother and my in-laws and do all that sort of thing. And so it took me a long time to learn how to ask for help. Um, but I would say don't be embarrassed. And then I'd also like to say a little something for people who are supporting carers, and that is please never, ever say, um, let me know if there's anything I can do to help and just leave that <laughs> open-ended question because let me tell you, there is always something that you can do to help. But quite often... You know, it's a two-sided thing. 
um, the carer is embarrassed to ask or doesn't know what to ask for, and the person might be genuinely offering to help, but they don't know what to say or do. But in my book, I've got a whole list of things you can do, but here's a few suggestions. You could just put in a telephone call. I mean, I had a girlfriend that used to call me on a Saturday morning at 10 o'clock, and we would talk about, well, she'd ask about Richard, but talk about all sorts of things. And uh, so, in other words, to remind me, there is a world that you live in that is beyond dementia and to remember that you're part of that world and so is your family. And there would be weeks when I would, on a Monday or Tuesday night, I would start counting the sleeps until Saturday when mm. I knew that call was coming through. Yeah. So please, please, please. And we could, my mum used to make a casserole, drop it off at the front door um, or come and come and sit with the person with dementia so that the carer can go to the dentist, can go to the doctor, can have a haircut or take the person with dementia, you know, drive down to the beach, eat fish and chips with them, just something. But it is a lot easier if it is a specific task and so that's why I've included a lot of suggestions in my book but you know like and if you can't think of anything you know maybe ring up and say look I'm going to the shops on Saturday morning do you need um, anything? yeah do you need anything or even I'm going be even more specific I'm going to the butcher the you know the dry cleaner the fruit and veg I mean if I had in those days even if I'd had a fruit bowl full and if someone had said they were going there I said oh yes please get me something <laughs> I'd either, I'd either eat the fruit that was there or put it put it yeah. away in the fridge just for the visit yeah because what you find is what I describe as a sort of social leprosy after a while because people uh, they don't know enough about dementia and so they start to Stay away. They keep it's their a, distance. Thing with a lot Just, of il- a lot of illnesses are like this, aren't they? That's right. People, are. people, are, you, you get a shunning effect. I know. One three hundred eight hundred triple two. We're talking with Carolyn Cramwell, uh, who's the author of Navigating Alzheimer's and Hardcore Resilience, about caring for Alzheimer's uh, sufferers, and also Dr. Helena Popovich, uh, who's the author of Can Adventure Prevent Dementia? An expert in improving brain function. As well. So back to some calls here uh, and a few questions. Andrew from Ipswich. Hello, Andrew. Oh, hi, how are you? Not bad. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Uh, a quick question. My mum suffers from dementia, and I'm wondering, I, I feel, I believe that when I was in grade 12, so that's like in 94, she had a stroke or a TIA, mm-hmm. and I'm wondering if that could have caused the beginning of her dementia, admitting, though, that her mum also had dementia as well. Hello? Yes. The, at least 30% of people who have a stroke go on to develop a form of dementia. So a stroke is a risk factor. Partly because, well, what's good for the heart is also good for the brain. What about a so TIA? A TIA is a transient ischemic attack. That's like a minor stroke. With mm. it, it's like a, it's you get the symptoms of a stroke, but then you recover, and it's like oh, you know, just it, it could be minutes, it could be hours. Um, so it's a transient lack of blood supply to the brain that that then reverses, mm. but it's still a risk factor because it's it's a red flag for problems with blood supply to the brain. Okay. Thanks, Andrew, for the question. Um, there you go. Ken from Perth. G'day, Ken. G'day. Hi. Hello, all. Hi. My question is about tinnitus. Mm-hmm. Is that a precursor to or a warning sign of, you know, possible dementia or other cognitive 
Helena, any connection well, between tinnitus and dementia? We, we definitely know that midlife hearing loss, that's between the ages of 40 and 60. If you have hearing loss between 40 and 60 and you don't get it treated, you have a significant increase in your risk of dementia. Mm-hmm. And that's because, number one, if, if you can't hear, then the auditory cortex in your brain is not receiving stimulation, use it or lose it. Secondly, you're not getting appropriate stimulation from your environment. You may start to withdraw because you can't hear things properly. So definitely hearing loss is associated. And in some cases, tinnitus can be associated with hearing loss, problems with hearing. But I don't know if there's a direct link there may be an indirect link. Mm, okay. All right. Um, Leanne from Boondal in Brisbane. G'day, Leanne. Hi there. Um, so thanks for addressing this topic. Really appreciate it. My biological father has dementia of the Alzheimer's type, and mm-hmm. we believe that he is the one that I inherited my autism from. Right. So is there a link between the autistic brain and Alzheimer's and a predisposition? Helena? That I am not aware of. Uh, There is a link between increased risk if you have Down syndrome. There is an increased risk if you have post-traumatic stress disorder, if you have major psychiatric disorders, um, schizophrenia, major depression. But I'm not sure about autism. Mm. Okay. And I think probably at this stage I'm going to hedge and say probably not, but I, I... can't guarantee that. Mm, okay. Thanks, Leanne. one three hundred eight hundred triple two is the number. Just back on some text questions too. Uh, if someone has dementia, would they know and would it bother them? Uh, uh, Carolyn, what do you think? I can, I can answer that one easily. Yeah. Yes, yeah, it would yeah. bother them enormously. Right. Uh, the and, fear... and yes, they would know. There is a point at which they would know, isn't there? Uh, no, well, Richard was sort of pretty much in denial. He sort of knew there was something wrong. Um, but had but the doctor told him that he had dementia? No, when the doctor did tell him, hmm. or told us both, um, he sort of went into total shock. And um, it was very hard for him to accept. Um, and, you know, I can understand that. So... Um, hmm. Yeah, I remember when my dad was given the diagnosis, he said to me, he said, well, he said, that's what the doctor says. He said, but it doesn't bother me. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> I mean, I'm, all, I mean that, all, that, all that says to us is that, of course, you know, patients are individual and they'll receive these things in different ways, I'm sure. Absolutely. But yes, but Richard was incredibly concerned. But like a lot of people in the very early stages of dementia, they become very good at masking the situation. Mm. And that's why the story of when we were overseas is relevant, because um, I took him out of his natural environment. Hmm. And there were, you know, airports, not really a good place, sensory overload, um, all sorts of, you know, hustle and bustle and um, and then to foreign countries. And so it was a lot difficult, a lot more difficult then to sort of mask the situation, whereas at home um, it was different. Hmm. In short, Caroline, just before we go, because the time is running out hmm. on us, yeah, w- would you say that a whole lot of stimulating new experiences are good or is it better to concentrate on routines? I would say routines because routines are security, Hmm. routines are safety. And if you're somebody that is fearful or even know that you're losing control of your mind, of your memory, you're clinging to those certainties. Hmm. So I would say 
I would say keep to routine as much as possible. Mm. Okay. That's after diagnosis. I agree. Mm. Because yep. you've got to keep them safe and not stressed. But throughout life, novelty, curiosity, can adventure prevent dementia? Sure. Spoiler alert, yes. You know, having a sense of adventure and trying new things and learning new things, it's protective. But once you have it, then it can, can be an overload and a stress, yes. Yeah, yeah got it. All right, look, um, sadly time has beaten us, but I do thank, I do thank both of you for your time and, uh, and, and you're generous with your time too. Dr Helena Popovich, uh, author pleasure. of Can Adventure Prevent Dementia? Thanks, Helena. Uh, good on you. And Carolyn Cramwell, author of Navigating Alzheimer's and Hardcore Resilience. Thanks, Carolyn. Thank you, Philip. Pleasure to be with you. It's uh, been a pleasure to, be with, to have you with us as well. You've been listening to a Nightlife podcast. For more great conversations about the issues that impact you, as well as features on travel and food, head to the Nightlife webpage. You'll find it at abc.net.au slash nightlife. You don't need to be a night owl to enjoy the nightlife.